Well, I've been preparing for this message over the last several weeks. A particular song has been running through my head. See if you know this one. Joy and pain like sunshine and rain. Sing it, all God's children. Joy and pain like sunshine and rain. Sorry to put you through that. If you don't know that song, that is the great theologian Rob Bass and his biblical research assistant, DJ Easy Rock, with their popular theological treatise, Joy and Pain, from 1988. Did you see the theology there? You will have pain in your life. You will have rain in your life. But what, what we want you to know today, friends, is that you can have joy in the midst of pain, and you can have sunshine in the midst of rain. So we can title our message this morning, this morning, Liberating and Lasting Joy. So let's tackle this concept of joy together. Joy is a short but powerful word. I remember the joy of my wedding day, the joy when each of our three kids were born, the joy when each of the three kids were baptized, and then when IU won the basketball championship in 1987. And I'm not going to say which one of those was the most joyful moment for me. Those were all great moments, but we know that joy is much, much more than a situation. Joy is more than a circumstance. Joy can be described as a deep abiding. So there are a few definitions of joy that I'd like to share with you. Theopedia says joy is a state of mind and an orientation of the heart. It is a settled state of contentment, confidence, and hope. Pastor Rick Warren from the West Coast says, Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life and the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. I love that. Joy is everything is going to be all right. <laughs> well, as we find our place in John this morning, take a look at John 16, 16 through 33. There's no question the disciples do not think everything is going to be all right. Let's recap. So Jesus has announced that Judas, one of their own, was going to betray him. Jesus has claimed that Peter, their fearless spokesman, would deny him. Jesus has stated that the world, the people that lived around them, would hate them. And Jesus has said that he, that Jesus, their faithful leader, would leave them. This is our sixth message in our Kingdom Come series. We continue to walk through John's incredible and amazing gospel. And I love the flow of this particular passage. The disciples experience a range of emotions. In these 18 verses, we will see grief turn to joy for the disciples. Doubt will turn to faith, and fear will turn to peace. First, grief turns to joy. Open your Bibles or your Bible apps to John 16. We're going to start with verse 16. So Jesus is still in a conversation with his, with his disciples, and Jesus went on to say, in a little while... You will see me no more, and then after a while you will see me. 
At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? We feel for the disciples here. The disciples are hurting. And their first emotion in this passage is confusion. It's bewilderment. It's perplexity. Their leader is leaving them. And even worse, he's using language that they can't even understand. These four verses, the phrase, little while, is said six times. And a while is said once. Jesus is all-knowing. He knows what's going to happen. But the disciples, unfortunately, do not. Scholars debate about the meaning of Jesus' words. Likely, when Jesus says, in a little while, you will see me no more, this refers to his crucifixion and the three days following. But what about, then after a while, you will see me? This could mean the coming of the Holy Spirit, possibly, or maybe the second coming of Jesus. But I personally believe that he's referring to his resurrection before he goes back to heaven. The disciples add, because I am going to the Father, to the lips of Jesus, further reflecting their confusion. 19th century New Testament scholar Frederick Godet remarks, where for us, all is clear. For them, for the disciples, all was mysterious. If Jesus wishes to found the Messianic kingdom, why would he go away? If he does not wish it, why would he return? In verse 20, Jesus says emphatically, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, or you will wail and lament while the world rejoices. You will grieve, you will have sorrow, you will have pain, but your grief, your grief will turn to joy. The contrast between the sorrow of the disciples and the joy of the world is striking. At the crucifixion of Jesus, the world would rejoice while the disciples would weep. At the resurrection of Jesus, the grief of the disciples would turn into joy. The joy of the world seems temporary. It seems fleeting, while the joy of the disciples is lasting. As Christ followers, joy and grief can exist together. They can be side-by-side emotions. I remember the grief I experienced when my mother passed away, but at the same time, the joy of knowing that she would spend eternity in heaven. Sometimes through a heavenly perspective or a spirit-filled perspective, God can transform our grief into joy. We still have the exact same circumstance. It's still there in our lives, but we look at that circumstance through a different lens. Then in verse 21, Jesus tells a short story. He tells an analogy to describe what he means. Jesus says in verse 21, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time or her hour has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, Jesus says, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you'll rejoice and no one will take away your joy. The NLT says, no one can rob you of your joy. I love that. 
Now, personally, I have not given birth to a baby. Probably not hard for you to understand. But I have witnessed the birth of three babies, Austin, and then Addison, and then Ansley. And boy, can I tell you that the birth of those babies created incredible pain for my wife, Julie. Awful pain, terrible pain, excruciating pain. But then she had each of our kids, and the pain was brief. And in that moment, the pain went away. She still had it, but the pain turned into joy. In the same way, the disciples would experience pain in the death of Jesus, but they would experience abounding joy in the resurrection of Jesus. This resurrection would dawn a new day for the disciples. The image of birth pangs was not new to the readers of John's gospel. The Old Testament prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah each write of the intense pain and suffering the nation of Israel had as they waited for a Messiah, as they waited for salvation. The Messiah came, he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended, and he will come again. And that, that is lasting joy. And no one, no one can take that joy away from us. Jesus goes on in verse 23. In that day, or on that day, you will no longer ask me for anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be made complete, or your joy will be made full, it will will be made abundant. These are amazing words by Jesus. Listen to these words. That day often refers to the day of the Lord, when he comes again in glory. But here it probably refers to his resurrection, where the disciples will finally get it, where they will understand. Jesus uses the word ask twice, we see in verse 23. The first ask, which is, you will no longer ask me for anything, probably has to do with a question for information. The disciples won't need to do that anymore. They will understand. Jesus will have ascended to heaven. He won't be around anymore. The second ask, which is, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name, probably refers to a prayer or making a request. So Jesus is ushering in a new perspective on prayer for the disciples. The disciples can go directly to the Father in the name of Jesus. And this is new ground for them. At my office, I continuously receive calls from people trying to sell me something. I'm sure many of you have that same circumstance. So one day, a few weeks ago, our receptionist, Diane, buzzed me and she said, T.J. Black Creek is on the phone for you. And I said, who is T.J. Black Creek? And uh, needless to say, Mr. Black Creek had expressed to Diane that he and I were close and I needed to talk to him. Also, needless to say, I did not talk to Mr. Black Creek because I have no idea who he was. So Jesus says that is not the case with the Father. We have a direct line to the Father. There is no receptionist needed. There is no Diane needed. And that is a game changer for the disciples. 
For many of us, praying in the name of Jesus seems natural. We're accustomed to that. The name of Jesus is powerful. But it's not powerful in a magical kind of sense. We should ask in the name of Jesus for God's good and perfect will to be done in our lives. We should not view God as the big cash register or the big vending machine in the sky. That's not who God is. Scholar Kenneth Gangle claims, when we pray in Jesus' name, it connects us to him by faith. It honors him as God, and it proclaims his lordship in our lives. Jesus tells them again, they will have abiding joy. And we're reminded of the teaching on the vine and the branches from John 15. In John, in John 15, 11, Jesus says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Now, this is important. We should not view joy entirely from an internal perspective. Joy is in us for the purpose of joy spilling out of us. True joy, friends, cannot be contained. Pastor John Piper says, pursuing your joy in God is essential to your loving people. When we live and love like Jesus, others see that joy in us, and they want to know what that has come from. Jesus tells the disciples, their grief will turn to joy. Well, let me ask you, are you grieving right now? Did you recently lose someone that you love to an illness? Do you have a personal relationship with a friend that is failing? Are you distraught? Are you concerned by the violence and the social unrest in our community and in the world? Do you struggle with the particular sin in your life that grieves you? Trust in Jesus. He can turn your grief into joy. Next, doubt turns to faith. Jesus goes on in verse 25. Though I have been speaking figuratively or with figures of speech, the time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Know the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. One of the primary modes of Jesus' teaching was parables or short stories to make a single point. He used clever sayings, metaphors, indirect teaching when he taught. He would use symbolism and practical examples like when he washed the disciples' feet. In some cases, Jesus would ask or would take the disciples aside to explain to them what he was teaching. But many times, they were just as confused as the Jewish crowd was, just as confused as the Jewish leaders were. Well, Jesus says in this passage, a time is coming when I will tell you plainly about my Father. The teaching of Jesus in the 40 days after his resurrection would be illuminating for the disciples. Plus the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It's a big moment. That would open their minds to understanding. Jesus has assured the disciples his departure is a good thing. It is the best thing for them because the Holy Spirit will guide them and comfort them in great joy. Jesus wants his disciples to know God the Father loved them 
first. It is a real love. It is an intimate love. It's a love expressed in unity between God the Father and God the Son. The love of God is reflected in the presence of Jesus with the disciples when he's on earth. And it's also reflected in the presence of the Holy Spirit with the disciples as Jesus ascends to heaven. N.T. Wright says this whole passage, whole passage then really is about the Father, how much he loves each one who trusts in Jesus and how great are the promises that he makes in Jesus to each of us. Verse 28, I think, is probably the most impactful statement made in this entire passage. Verse 28 claims the entire mission of Jesus. It claims the salvation plan of Jesus. Jesus came to earth from the Father. He entered the world as an agent of God's message to humankind. He purposefully leaves the world through crucifixion, and he is resurrected and ascends to the Father in heaven, in victory. Amen. So we need to recognize the direfully needed, remarkably crafted, and supernaturally executed mission of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth so we could go to heaven. Jesus died on the cross so we could live eternally. Jesus rose from the dead so we could join him in victory. And the beautiful thing, friends, is all you need is faith. Speaking of faith, let's pick back up in verse 29. We see the response now of the disciples after this long conversation with Jesus. Verse 29, then Jesus' disciples said, now, are you, now you are speaking clearly, or you're speaking plainly to us without figures of speech. The disciples say, now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have to ask anyone for questions. <laughs> this makes us believe that you, Jesus, came from God. So the disciples have been self-confident up to this point, self-confident. Now they express a confidence in Jesus. They express a belief that Jesus does know all things and they have an understanding of his teaching. They claim they are no longer confused. All doubt for them is gone. They make a profound statement of faith in Jesus. We applaud their theology in that moment. They say the right words. Unfortunately, before sundown, the very next day, when Jesus is hanging on that cross, what do they do? Unfortunately, collectively, they run and hide. Their actions, the actions of the disciples do not match their words. And we're reminded of Jesus' friend Martha and her statement that she made to Jesus in John eleven twenty seven. 27. Remember that passage? Verse 27, Martha says, I believe, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God who is to come into the world. Powerful statement. And then a little bit later, at the tomb of her brother Lazarus, the faith of Martha cracks. She does not comprehend what Jesus is about to do. She doesn't understand that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, we can't be too critical of the disciples. They have not yet been equipped with the Holy Spirit. They did not have what we have. Their faith is a step in the right direction. Their hearts are being formed for faith. Their minds are being prepared for discernment. J.C. Ryle claims their enthusiasm 
is touching, but it is insecurely based. Like young recruits, they had yet to learn that it is one thing to know the soldier's drill and to wear the uniform, but it's quite another to be steadfast in faith. In this battle, in this passage, the doubt of the disciples turns to a level of faith. In time, they will profess a fullness, a fullness of faith. So how about you? What do you have doubts about right now? Are you wondering about your career path, your profession in these strange, uncertain times that we live in? Do you have concerns about your health with the coronavirus not going away, continuing to persist? Do you have doubts within your marriage or a long-time dating relationship? Do you have doubts about your relationship with Jesus and whether you're going to go to heaven? Trust in Jesus. He can turn your doubt into faith. Finally, fear turns to peace. Jesus reacts to the statement of faith made by the disciples. Let's turn to verse 31. Do you now believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming. Another translation says, behold, an hour is coming. And in fact, has come when you will be scattered, disciples, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Jesus loves the disciples. We know that, but he recognizes the fragility of their faith. His death will hit them hard. Worldly persecution will hit them hard. They do believe at this point, but it is in an inadequate faith. The disciples had great fear of abandonment from Jesus. Unfortunately, they would scatter at the most inopportune time at his crucifixion. In verse 32, John is likely citing Zechariah 13.7, which says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. As Gerald Borchard claims, the glue of Christianity is not the disciples. Don't be confused. The glue of Christianity is Jesus, who will not abandon the disciples or let them become orphans, even though they, even though the disciples would abandon him. We have a tendency to wander from God, don't we? But praise God that he does not wander from us. Have you ever been left? I remember a few times when our kids were younger, we forgot to pick them up from a practice. And they felt lost. They felt abandoned until we came and showed up. So this was how the disciples felt with the departure of Jesus. That said, Jesus tells them, you will abandon me. But I have the Father. I am not alone. Don't be confused by Mark 15, 34. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, just moments before his death, he cries out to the Father. Maybe you remember that moment. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father does not forsake the Son here in this moment. Jesus is simply demonstrating his humanity. He's a man. Jesus was suffering greatly in this cry of agony. He is most definitely separated from God during that three-day period after his death and prior to his resurrection. But that is not abandonment. That was God's plan. That was his plan all along. That was his plan for salvation. And would you agree with me that that was a plan that Jesus 
obediently executed with incredible precision. Now we close out our passage. John 16, 33. Take a look there. Jesus says to his disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have conquered the world, Jesus says. We're reminded of Romans 8, 37, where the apostle Paul writes, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You have a dual existence if you believe in Jesus. Did you know that? You have a dual existence. You are in him, you're in Jesus, but you're also in the world. And we know how the world is. The world is difficult. The world creates fear, anxiety, sorrow. The world is filled with troubles, filled with persecution, tribulation, affliction, oppression, and trials. Jesus has overcome the world. The word for overcome in the original Greek language is nikeo. And this word, nikeo, means to conquer, to overpower, prevail, triumph, to be victorious. This word is related to the name Nike. Nike, just like the shoes. Nike was the Greek winged goddess of victory. So this is a word of triumphant generals. It's a word of emperors of old. This is the word of world conquerors. Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great. Jesus has overcome the world. He has overcome the prince of the world. Jesus has overcome Satan. 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Our strength comes in Him. Our courage comes in Him. Our security comes comes in him. Our encouragement comes in him. Our hope comes in him. And our peace, our peace comes in him. In Jesus, we're like Rocky Balboa, played, of course, by the great Sylvester Stallone in those Rocky movies. What were there, 15 Rocky movies? So in that first movie, you might recall, Rocky is preparing for the big fight against Apollo Creed. So he drinks the the raw eggs, and he's running, and he's shadow boxing, he's trained, he's doing push-ups. And that long scene, it seemed like it was forever, ended as Rocky is running up the steps of that museum in Philadelphia. We can all picture it in our minds if you've seen it. He gets up to the top, and what does he do? He's dancing around. He's got his hands up. He's ready to take on Apollo Creed. In that moment, we are ready to take on Apollo Creed, we have tingles coming down our spines. The juices are flowing. And friends, that is what Jesus puts in us. That's what he gives us. No fear. No fear. He gives us victory. Jesus promises his disciples their fear will turn to peace. So what causes you fear right now? Do you fear missing out on something in your life? Do you fear a serious illness, cancer, heart attack, 
Are you unsettled due to the pandemic, the raging violence that we have in our world? Are you unsettled because of the upcoming election? Do you fear death? Trust in Jesus. He can turn your fear into peace. The disciples were confused. <laughs> they were down and out. They had lost all hope. They did not think everything was going to be all right. Sometimes that's our world, isn't it? Well, Jesus says, believe in me. Trust in me. I want to encourage you today, friends. Trust in Jesus. You can have joy in the midst of grief. You can have faith in the midst of doubt. And you can have peace in the midst of fear. We're going to close today on a note of victory. There is liberating and lasting joy and victory in Jesus Christ. In John 16, Jesus promises us, take heart, I have overcome the world. If you flip the end of your Bible there, you'll see God's plan ends on a note of victory. The Apostle John has a vision from Jesus that he documents in the book of Revelation. Jesus tells John, write letters to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Write those letters. And John ends each letter with a challenge for those churches to be victorious in the battle of life. Among those letters, John writes, to the one who's victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. It's Revelation 2.7. To the one who's victorious, I will give authority over all the nations. It's Revelation 2.26. To the one who's victorious, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. It's Revelation 3.5. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. It's Revelation 3.21. And then finally, toward the end of Revelation, John writes, those who are victorious will inherit all this He's writing the words of Jesus. Jesus says, I will be their God and they will be my children. That's Revelation 21.7. Be victorious. Be victorious. May your grief turn to joy. May your doubt turn to faith. And may your fear, may your fear Turn to peace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are victorious in you. We have grief in our life. We have fear in our life. We have doubts in our life. But we know, God, that through your son Jesus, we can overcome that is a promise in Scripture that Jesus gives us, God. And I pray for everyone hearing this message that they can overcome the problems in their life through faith in Jesus. And it's in His powerful name that we pray. Amen.